Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, August 11th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. This program is actually being pre-recorded Saturday morning for broadcast this evening at Christagenia. Once again, we have Sven Longshanks with us, and we are here to present our second discussion of Bible Basics. So this will be Bible Basics Part 2. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Hello, Sven. It's good to have you here again. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on, Bill. Um, I think the last podcast we did, that certainly went down well. I had a lot of people saying they enjoyed that and, and asking me when the next one was going to be on. And I know when we were actually recording it, time flew past. So, um, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to tonight. It's uh, We've got a lot of um, exciting stuff to cover, I think. Right. And, and let me say that these podcasts are meant to be just sort of casual discussions um, covering, I hope, all of the common questions that people have about the Bible and about Christian identity and touching all the important points so that they could see that we have a worldview that, that's um, quite consistent and, and that matches our current reality very well. I mean, it's the situation that we're in and what we believe about our history and our scripture all coalesce in Christian identity. Yeah, it all it all fits to, it all fits together. This is the thing people they think that the the Bible is just a, a load of myths or it's a load of fables. And I, and I think we showed last week that it's actually it's taken from tablets that go back thousands of years. It's not just oral legends that got passed down. It started out with actual family records and, and family trees, genealogical records that were handed down from, from father to son. And these are the earliest records that we have as the white race. And I think we, we showed a bit, some of the evidence for, for why it is the records of the white race. And I think we're going to completely nail it tonight with, with why it is the white race. And if it's the you know, where the white race has come from, of course, it's going to help us with knowing where we're going, besides all the prophecies that are in there that have, that have been shown to come true, that also prove the um, the veracity of the Bible. Well, well, right. It's absolutely ridiculous to think that all of our European ancestors over the last um, 2,000 years, from, from 2,000 years ago until 1,000 years ago, right? Because about 1,000 years ago, the last European tribes were converted to Christianity. So over that 1,000-year period, which ended almost 1,000 years ago, 800 if you want to be more exact, well, all of our Aryan ancestors in Europe accepted Christianity, and, and we can't imagine that they just believed some sand flea that walked out of the desert on a camel and presented them these scriptures, and they believed it. No, there must be a, a more pressing, um, deeper truth as to why they accepted Christianity. Because they weren't stupid. We can't imagine that our own fathers a thousand years ago or 1500 years ago or 1900 years ago were merely stupid and deceived. 
That's what's so insulting about it, isn't it? You know, that's what's so insulting about it when, when you get these, these pagan types that, that act as if, uh, you know, that they, they are the really bright, intelligent people. They've worked out that this is all a, a Jewish con game. And you just think, well, so you're saying that the last 2000 years of, of white people, they were, they were all idiots. And, you know, and you're, you're the brain of Europe. Instead of looking for, uh, ways to attack it, we should be looking for what it was that that original spark that actually grabbed our European ancestors and said to them, you should be following this because it's obviously still going to be there. That's the point of it, I think. Otherwise, you're just mocking your own ancestors. Yeah. And it's not just a couple of generations of your own ancestors. It's a thousand years worth of your own ancestors that you're mocking. In our last discussion, we briefly contrasted the creation account of scripture to the ancient pagan creation accounts of Mesopotamia. In summary, the pagan accounts describe a world created in chaos. In that world, gods mingle with mortals and race or kind, as it's translated in the opening chapters of Genesis, does not matter. So men are not even judged under that consideration. Rather, men of great valor or strength are worshipped regardless of their origin. And this is all quite the opposite of the biblical creation account. In the Bible, everything was created by God in a specific order with a specific status and purpose. And it was commanded that these things were to be kept in that order, kind after kind. The opening chapters of Genesis discuss the creation of God and the concept of race, which is kind after kind, over and over again. In fact, as far as I know, the ancient Hebrew scriptures are the only scriptures upon which a concept of racism can be based, because the pagan scriptures have no um, concept of racial purity. The ancient Mesopotamian inscriptions have no concept of racial purity, which demands that such racial purity be maintained. I might be wrong, but I've never seen it. In ancient Egypt, there are writings that that um, the ancient Egyptians didn't even consider foreigners as people, right? But aside from them, I don't know of another an, another place where this idea of racism being a commandment from God is expressed, except in Genesis. In the Bible, everything was created by God in a specific order. It was to be kept in that order, kind after kind. When men mingled with gods, or as we call them from a biblical perspective, fallen angels, it was sin, regardless of the prowess or strength or ability of the offspring. They weren't admired because they were giants. They were despised because they were bastards. We suffer in the world of today because of that sin on the part of the earliest men of our race. And because of that, we struggle 
in a struggle which the Bible described as the inevitable result of that race mixing. The pagan account does not conflict with the biblical account. In the Enoch literature, we see that the rebellion of the fallen angels is the confusion of kind after kind, the mixing together of themselves with all sorts of animal kind, resulting in monsters and demons and all sorts of unnatural creatures. Now, that is certainly chaos. So the tale, the Sumerian myth, the Babylonian myth of Tiamat, the dragon, the serpent, creating the world out of chaos, certainly is biblical, and we will see that. It certainly is what the Bible teaches, but that world was the world which the Adamic man in the creation of God in Genesis was to supplant. Well, there's, um, there's, a, there's a lot of evidence out, out, outside of the Bible that, that you know, seems it, it basically adds to this, I think. You know, we talked about it last week. We said that uh, when you were talking about the the Hindus and then worshipping the, the serpent and the South Americans worshipping the serpent, when you look at the, the colour of these, these Hindu gods, they're all blue, or the majority of them are blue, which is which is saying that they they come down from the heavens, they've fallen from the sky, and then when you look at what these what these gods actually did, they end up interbreeding with man, which is exactly the story. I mean, just just looking into it today, I found out about these um, these creatures called Venaras, which has apparently come to mean monkey over the years. So they're depicted as monkeys in in popular art, and they're in uh, a, a great Hindu epic, which is called the Ramayana. And that presents them as humans, uh, with reference to their speech, clothing, habitations, funerals, consecrations, and but it also describes their monkey-like characteristics, such as leaping hair, fur, and a tail. And later, later they said that this tail was just um, put on them. But then you find out that these Venaras, they were created by Brahma, who is the creator god, to help one of these other gods in a battle. And they're, apparently they're very powerful. They have many godly traits, just like the, the mighty men of old that we hear about in Genesis. And then it says that taking Brahma's orders, all the other gods began to parent sons in the resemblance of monkeys. And these Venaras took birth in bears and monkeys, attaining the shape and valor of the gods and goddesses who created them. And there were so many of them that they ended up organizing into armies and spreading across the earth and and having battles and having wars. And, and that, that's exactly what we hear about in um, Genesis chapter 6, where, where it talks about, uh, you know, corruption spreading across the earth and all the kinds become intermingling with one another and, and there's just violence and, and there's war. And you've got this same story that's that's being told here in Hinduism. And, you know, they, they even believe that the gods themselves have, have animal features and of course, you know, these fallen angels, if they interbred with the animals, they would have animal features. And again, if you look at the Egyptian gods, you've got uh, humanoid beings with, with animal heads, animal features. They are the fallen angels. And it was these other races that were following them. There's nothing about racial purity. That doesn't even seem to have crossed the mind of the scribes that were writing this stuff. That, um, you know, this might actually be wrong. These beings that the, the Hindus are looking up to as gods in interbreeding with, with man. And it's, it's completely wrong. And, and to add to that as well, I mean, I've been reading a lot of Islamic stuff 
And their Adam, their story of Adam, he didn't come from the Garden of Eden, he came down from the heavens. So again, it is a fallen angel. It's saying that the origin of these mixed-race beings, even their their first man, their first Adam, he came down from the heavens, this, the same as we're told these, these fallen angels did. So, you know, the, just a little look into the other religions and what they talk about on this subject bears everything that you've been saying out, I think, Bill. Well, absolutely. These ancient, these most ancient pagan myths are basically a retelling of the same story that we see in the Bible, but from the opposite perspective. In the Enoch literature, we have the same story of these fallen angels going out and mixing their seed, their own seed, their own sperm, with every kind to create monsters and, and demons and these unnatural creatures. And the from the biblical perspective, they are all bastards that need to be and that will ultimately be destroyed. That's the Bible story. But those myths of these alien cultures are written from the opposite perspective. So their perspective is a positive one, where our Christian perspective, believing our Bible, is a negative one, that we look on them negatively, because we know that they are those bastards that were created here by these so-called fallen angels. They're corruptions of God's original creation in a civilization that preceded our own. And in Matthew chapter 13, Christ explained that the field is the world and the wheat are the children of the kingdom, meaning the kingdom of God. And as soon as that wheat was planted, that wheat representing the white Adamic race, that the devil came along and planted tares among the wheat. And saying this, Christ had also professed that he came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So we can't understand the book of Genesis by itself because Christ is telling us there is information which is missing from it information which has been purposely kept secret, information which is not disclosed until he came to reveal it. So, to understand Genesis, we must correlate Genesis with the parables and the revelation of Christ. In Revelation chapter 13, we see that the devil planted tares among the wheat beings of an alien nature among us. In Revelation chapter 12, we are given a brief account of the rebellion of the so-called fallen angels. And the leader of that rebellion is called the great dragon, that old serpent, the devil, and Satan. He and his followers were cast out of heaven where their place was no longer found. So in Genesis, Adam is created, and that serpent is already there to undermine Adam's purpose. The serpent is also seen to represent 
a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And trees in our scriptures are very often used allegorically to represent races. Ostensibly, since the God of the Bible only took credit for having created the white Adamic man, and the creation of angels is not included in the Bible, but they exist, the non-white races are branches on this other tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is represented by the serpent and which has its origin in the chaos and the confusion of the rebellion of the fallen angels and their experimenting with crossbreeding species, which is described in the Enoch literature that was taken out of our Bibles 2,000 years ago. It was left out. Bill, I'll just, um, one, one thing that I know that people would be asking is, okay, so if the non-white races are, they're the branches of, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but didn't the flood wipe all these people out? How can they still be here if there was a flood that, that wiped, wiped all these people out? How, you know, why are they still here? Where, where are they? Where does it say in the Bible that they are? Or, or where, where does it imply that these people are still alive? I think there's something in uh, Jude, isn't there? about chains of everlasting darkness? Well, well right. Uh, I mean, Jude and Peter both attest to the existence of these people among the Christians of their time, and they relate these people to the angels that sinned, the angels that left their first estate. Jesus Christ stood in the temple and told his opponents, the Jews, that they were responsible for the blood of Abel that they were the descendants of the first murderer, their father, who was a murderer from the beginning. That can only describe Cain. And if they were responsible for the blood of Abel, and I'm citing Luke chapter 8 and John chapter 8. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 11 from about verse 44, 45 in there. Luke chapter 11 and John chapter 8. If they were responsible for the blood of Abel, they must have been descendants of Cain. When we look at the Genesis account, the idea that the flood covered the whole earth is a mistake if we try to imagine that the earth was the entire planet, because that word for earth throughout Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, 9 is the word eretz, and the same word was translated merely as land over a thousand times in the Bible. It's the whole land that the flood covered. Now, that's Genesis chapter 9, where the flood ends. And in Genesis chapter 10, you have a table of nations of people that descended from Noah, which we will discuss shortly. And in Genesis chapter 15, you have a reference at the end of the chapter to Kenites. And Kenites are the descendants of Cain. And the Kenizzites... Kenizzites are not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. They did not descend from Noah. And Cadmonites, Cadmonites are not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. They did not descend from Noah. And the Hittites and the Perizzites, 
And then you have the rethane. And the rethane are the word, rapha is the word for giant. The rethane are the giants. And this is proven throughout scripture. Goliath was a giant. And in First Chronicles, he was described as being one of the sons of the giant, one of the sons of Rapha. Goliath and his brother were giants. And Og of Bashan was a giant. And the Amalekites were, were um, engaged with the giants. There are other branches of the giants in Scripture. The Anakim are giants. And those are the descendants of the giants of Genesis chapter 6. The mixing of those so-called fallen angels who were a race here on earth before Adam and the daughters of men or the daughters of Adam. So if those Rephaim still exist in Genesis chapter 15, and if those Kenites still exist in Genesis chapter 15, and you have other tribes who are not known to descend from Noah, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, and the Perizzites, that's five tribes of people in the land of Canaan who survived the flood. So the flood must have only covered the whole land. It was a cataclysmic event which affected a certain area where Noah and the children of Adam were, but it didn't cover the whole planet. Otherwise, there would be no Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Perizzites, and Rephaim. You cannot tell me that God is going to punish man for mixing with giants, for mixing with these fallen angels and creating these giants, and then preserve the giants on the ark. I'm not going to believe that. Well, I think um, I think also when they were actually writing that, they would have only the whole world would have been as far as they could see, and if they were in a valley, say. In, in that area, they would only be traveling, you know, a maximum of probably 100 miles, 150 miles. And that, that would have been the whole world to them. The, the rest of the, the world on the outside, would it wouldn't have existed to them. They, they, they wouldn't have actually seen that. And the, a second point that uh, I'd like to make is in um, in that epistle of Jude, when it talks about the, the fallen angels and they're trapped in chains of everlasting darkness. I believe it also says that they're in the earth. And I think people look at that and they think, oh, that means maybe they're trapped in the center of the earth. But I think it means in the earth, when we talk about God is in heaven and these angels are in the earth, it means they're on the earth. It means that they're around and about now, meaning these non-white races that are alive on the earth. That's what it's saying. The angels are in the earth. Do you see what I mean? We think that means inside the earth, but the way it was written, I think it's the same as when you say God is in heaven. And, and man is in the earth. Well, well right. If, if you look at the opening chapter of the book of Job, the sons of God, who are men, went to gather, as they're commanded to do three times a year, before God on one of the appointed days, and among them was a the devil. And 
when God asked the devil where he'd been, the devil said he was walking up and down upon the earth. There were devils walking all over the earth right now. Most of them are in New York, Tel Aviv, Miami, London, concentrated in certain areas. But there are devils walking up and down on, upon the earth right now. The, the concept of devil does not mean that that person is necessarily supernatural. It simply means that his origination is not from God. Look at the 12 apostles. Christ said to the apostles, have I not chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil? And it can be effectively argued that Judas Iscariot was an Edomite and he was not an Israelite. For that reason, he was a devil. Just like in Revelation chapter 12, the great dragon stood before the Christ child and attempted to kill that child. That is a vision of what happened when Christ was born with Herod the Great. Herod the Great was also an Edomite. So he is the representative historically of the great red dragon or Satan. In that instance, Herod the Edomite was Satan. These fallen angels and this tree of the knowledge of good and evil have spawned entire um, races and groups of people which collectively are Satan because their origination is opposed to the law of God. When a bastard is born, that bastard is contrary to God and his law because that's not the way God created his creation, to, to mix races and kinds. So they're devils just for means, for the, for the reason of their very existence. And Satan, the word Satan as well, that can be taken to mean plural, not, not just an individual. Isn't there examples of that as well? Well, well, right. Satan can be a collective term for an, an entire group of people, and it very often is. When, when Peter warned um, Christians in chapter 5 of his first epistle to be alert and, and watch out for themselves because the devil walks around like a lion seeking whom he may devour, that reference to the devil is not to one particular individual. It's to this whole collective group of individuals who have always been opposed to everything good and especially to God and to Christ. Today, we know them as Jews. Every Jewish lawyer is a devil walking about seeking whom he may devour, for example. So this is an entire collective. It's not merely one individual Satan. And in the Revelation, they're described as the synagogue of Satan, an entire assembly of little Satans. Any other questions? No, I, I, you know, I think this is, this is all, all, all bits that uh, Judeo-Christians just don't think about. They, they think that this Satan has got to be this, this supernatural creature or he's not on earth. Or if there were these fallen angels and they're chained up somewhere in the, in the center of the earth, 
when you know they're, well, they're not they're referred to all the time in the, in the new in the new testament and in the old right and and that's where i had to go that's where we had to conclude because that was your original question and and it got away from me that this idea of angels chained in darkness jude both jude in his short epistle and peter in chapter two of his second epistle discuss these angels chained in darkness they never say that the angels are chained in a pit in darkness. They both say that the angels are in chains of darkness. That doesn't mean that they're in a pit in the desert. They're in chains of darkness, or as Jude has it, in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Those chains are not necessarily iron chains holding people in a desert. Those chains of darkness are allegorical chains that these fallen angels are, are kept in um, bodies of darkness and, and can never come to the light of the truth or understand or, or be reconciled with God. And they're only kept in these chains of darkness, waiting to be destroyed by God. That's the judgment that they're reserved for, the lake of fire reserved for the devil and his angels. So there are people walking about who can never be white, who can never come to the light, and who will always be opposed to the people of God. They will always be against the people of God. And this is what we as Christians have experienced in history for many centuries now. These demonic beings who are always evil from generation to generation to generation, always contrary to us, always seeking to undermine our Christian society. It's like when you think of uh, devils, and, and devils are there to there to tempt people and and to lead people astray, and that's exactly what they do. They, they lead us astray. They use up all our resources. Um, you know, they're, they're not potential recruits for Christianity. They, even these early missionaries that went over there to Africa ended up having to accept that fact that as soon as they were gone, within six months, the place was going to descend back into cannibal savagery. And, and we've now got that, that in our countries and it just brings us down to their levels. And still the, the modern day church tries to recruit them. And, you know, we're even shamed by some of them in Africa, the ones that uh, are actually against homosexuality while the, while the Church of England is promoting it. I mean, it's got so bad that we are actually now being shamed by the devil over there in Africa. Well, well, right, and that's actually pretty ironic, isn't it? The, the truth is that um, 2,000 years ago, one tiny wave of Christian apostles, if, if I should call them that, or, or missionaries would be a more relevant term, Christian missionaries from Judea came into the various places of Europe and set off a chain of events by which 
in a thousand years, all of Europe would be Christian and on its way to establishing the greatest society, the greatest civilization which ever existed. In spite of all of our brother-on-brother wars and all of the problems and rivalries with our royal houses and princes, we established the greatest civilization ever in history in a Christian model of society based on Christian law with one small wave of apostles in the first century, where, to the contrary, Christian missionaries from Europe have been Christianizing Asia, China, Japan, the Philippines, for many, many centuries, and wave after wave after wave, and um, probably zillions of dollars, the equivalent of zillions of dollars in, in monetary support and aid. And these people are still savages. The same thing in Africa. We've been sending Christian ministries to Africa for 600 years now. Wave after wave, generation after generation. And these people are still savages. Nobody in Europe required that sort of attention to attain any level of civilization. Nobody. It's only these other races who require it from us. So we should ask ourselves seriously if it's ever supposed to be that way in the first place. Because it wasn't. Because Christianity is only for white people. And that's evident in the Bible itself. There is only one race, that of Adam, which is described as having been created by God in Genesis. And after Cain killed his brother, he went off to find company to build a city for people of another race in the land of Nod. Nod is a word which means wandering. The concept of wandering in scripture is a frequent allegory for sin. So it is not a stretch to imagine that the world outside of the Garden of God was already in a state of sin, that chaos described in the pagan creation literature. And the first proof of all of this is in the historical identity of the nations listed in Genesis chapter 10, as it can be ascertained through both history and archaeology that they were all originally white. Genesis chapter 10 is a snapshot of white civilization as it existed from the time that the world was divided, and that is sometime before 2500 B.C., as it's explained in Genesis chapter 11, and the time of Moses, which is around 1450-1500 B.C. Genesis chapter 10 is a snapshot of the white 
world at that time. And there were no white nations outside of these white nations. These nations can be, many of them can be positively identified beyond doubt. When we go to Genesis chapter 10, we're presented with this list of nations. The nations, the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's three sons, and the sons born to them after the flood. And a lot of these people can be absolutely, positively, without doubt, identified in history. And the sons of Japheth, some of these tribes have disappeared in history. They're not evident. And Gomer and Magog, even though Gomer is mentioned and Magog is mentioned later in Scripture in Ezekiel, as far as I've ever seen reading all of the Greek and Roman classics and scores and, and hundreds or maybe thousands of Mesopotamian inscriptions, Gomer and Magog are outside of, their fate is outside of our historical knowledge. We can't identify them precisely, although we can conjecture about Magog. But Madai, in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, Madai are the Medes, the Medes of history. They were known all the way down to the time of the Parthian Empire. In, in the Hellenistic period, these people were identified by Greeks, these Medes, and they're always called Madai throughout all of our Hebrew scriptures. And Javan and Javan, the Madai dwelt in what we know today as northern Iraq and along the Caspian Sea. Javan, in Persian inscriptions, the word is Yavana, and that's a reference to the Ionian Greeks of the coast of, of modern-day Turkey and the city of Athens, where they had their strongest and most notable Greek city. So, Javan of the Ionian Greeks, the people known as Greeks are actually several different tribes who kind of coalesced into a single culture back in the in 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 the um fifth sixth seventh eighth ninth centuries b c and even though they always had competing forms of government and they never really got along, these Greek tribes did have a single culture and common um, religious, pagan religious beliefs and customs. So Javan or the Ionian Greeks were, were the largest and, and oldest of those tribes, which eventually became known as Hellenes or Greeks. And then you have Tubal and Meshech. And Tubal and Meshech are actually mentioned as in Greek writings as early as the time of Herodotus under the names Tibarni and Maski. And they dwell on the coasts of the Black Sea at the time of Herodotus. And then you have Tiras and Tiras represents the people that we know from history as the Thracians. So we see these sons of Japan, these sons of Japheth are stretched along the sea coasts from the Caspian Sea all the way to the Aegean Sea. 
And that's not a far stretch. It's probably only about 500 miles. And they occupy their little nations all along the seacoasts. So when we get to um, Tarshish in verse 4, Elisha in verse 4, Elisha, there were actually um, inscriptions of an early tribe on the island of Cyprus which has been identified by archaeologists as Elisha. Tarshish has the ships of Tarshish in the Bible much later, in the time of Solomon and, and thereafter. The ships of Tarshish actually went to Tartessus in what we know now as southern Spain on the Mediterranean coast, southeastern Spain, was Tartessus. And even Herodotus identified, the Greek historian identified Tartessus as a seaport trading town from before the days of the Trojan War. And that's even older than the time of Solomon and David. So where the, the Hebrews and, and the Phoenicians of Tyre had ships of Tarshish, those ships were crossing the Mediterranean to go to Spain. Kittim. Kittim can, has also been identified with Cyprus and other various islands in the Mediterranean. And where it says Dodanum, the, in, in the modern block Hebrew, which has been popular since about the 2nd century BC, the D and the R are often confused. And the Septuagint actually has Rodanum, and they're identified with the Greeks of Rhodes, the island of Rhodes. So all of these people were white originally. They were all Aryans originally. And here we have a good half dozen positive historical identifications of these sons of Japheth with the sea peoples of the southern European coast at the earliest times. And that's not where it ends, because we can establish that the rest of these people were also originally white. You might have something to interject. Well, yeah, I was just um, uh, right at the beginning there, you, when you were talking about Goma, and you were saying, well, the, you know, we don't know what happened to Goma. Um, Joe, I'm not sure if it, if it actually goes back to Josephus, but the British Israel people, they thought that uh, Goma the Kumri came from Goma because the, because the, the two words were similar. And we, we know from later on inscriptions that, that the Kumri uh, actually come from the Gomri and they were the same as the Saka. They were Israelites from much later on. But I think Flavius Josephus may have got a bit confused when he was linking Goma with, with the Kumerians. Is, is that, is that right? Do you want to put that right, Bill? Well, that's right. Josephus based on a, a linguistic similarity had identified Gomer with the Chimerians and a thousand writers have followed after Josephus blindly, maybe a hundred thousand, right? Have followed after Josephus in that mistake blindly. That's clearly a mistake because the Kimeroi of the Greeks can be clearly identified with the Cymri of the Assyrians as being the same people. And they are the Chimerians. 
by which time Gomer had basically faded from the historical record. The Kimmeroi or the Kimmerians are the Kumri, which are the Amri of the Bible. The Assyrians called ancient Israel, which it had deported to the cities of the Medes and various other places around the Black Sea in the 8th and 7th centuries BC, the Assyrians identified them as the Bit Qumri or the House of Amri. And that's how they, uh, they identified the Israelites. That's very clear in the inscriptions. The House of Amri is linked to Samaria in the inscriptions, and they are the Kimmeroi or the Kimmerians of history. Yeah, it's written in a lot of so, places, that, isn't it? That um, Beth Omri and the Comri, it's not just on the Bethistun inscription that's on that big rock there. It's it's written down in um, all these tablets that were found in, in Nineveh. And there's a lot of uh, evidence outside the Bible for, for King Omri and him being quite an important person because he, he's not really mentioned that much in the Old Testament, is he? Um, no, I, I mean, he has a notable house in the Old Testament, and I believe Ahab descended directly from Omri, if I'm not mistaken. So, so the house of Omri, of which Ahab was a member, Ahab was the son of Omri, was a notable house, and it was a competitor to the growing Assyrian Empire. There are things in inscriptions, in Assyrian inscriptions, that we don't have in the scriptures about Omri and Ahab. For instance, in, in, at one point in an Assyrian inscription, it's attested that Ahab of the house of Omri had sent 10,000 foot soldiers to assist the king of Damascus in repelling an Assyrian invasion. So there are things in, in, the his, in, in these inscriptions that add to the history that we see in the scripture and prove that the books of Kings and Chronicles are fairly historically accurate. Would you say that this is where the, the modern-day church gets the idea that Europe was peopled by Japhethites? Uh, because they say that all the Europeans are, are descended from Japhet, which does also say that, um, obviously, Shem and Ham, his two brothers, they must have been white as well. So, obviously, something's happened to the Jews to turn them into Arabs, and something's happened to the descendants of Ham to, to turn them into Negroes. Because if the, if the modern-day church says Japhet is, is European, then that means the, the other two brothers are European as well. But, but is this where they get the idea that, that Europe came from Japhet, from these um, Mediterranean peoples and then just thinking well i guess that was it there was never any more migrations after that time well, well right i mean they look at this and and they look at these positive identifications with some tribes in europe and assume that the rest of the europeans are Japhethites, but that's simply not true and and as we shall see other tribes of Shem and Ham are absolutely every bit as white as these Japhethites were. They'd have to be. I mean, all, all three of them are brothers. They, they've, they've got the same mother and father. They have to be white. You, you've got Noah and his wife, 
and their, their three sons and their wives. Noah is perfect in his generations. He's pure in his biology. He's not mixed in with fallen angels or, or with any of the creatures that the fallen angels interbred with. He's absolutely pure and righteous and his sons are pure and righteous and they're going to look like Noah. They're going to look like Noah and his wife. And Noah's written in, uh, described in apocryphal literature, I believe, as, as having eyes, eyes like the sky or, and, and blonde hair and very rosy red cheeks and, and, you know, whiter than white, basically, Noah was. So his sons must have, must have looked the same. And in, and if the church thinks that the Europeans are just, are just, again, you know, this, this shows that these, these were white people. They, they couldn't be anything else. Well, well, absolutely. And if you really want to believe your Bible about Japheth, you have to go to Genesis chapter nine, verse twenty-seven, where it's re where it reads, "God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem." So, where we find Japhethites in Europe, we also have to find descendants of Shem. Ancient tribes that were related to the Thracians, so the Phrygians, the Gede, and the Dasi. So the, the Thracians, the Japhethites, you, you know, they spawned other tribes whose names are newer than the Genesis 10 records. But if we go back and, and look at the Shemites and, and the Cushites, we could see where they are too and, and what their original race is. And, and from there, we could start to build an understanding of how Europe was really settled. Well, hang on a minute, Bill. I was just going to say, I mean, those those nations you're talking about, the, the Thracians, the Medes, I mean, they were important nations. God did enlarge Japheth. I mean, the Thracians are very important, I think, in early European history and the Ionian Greeks. You know, it's proof of that prophecy, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Ionian Greeks were ultimately um, overtaken by the Dorian Greeks, overshadowed, I should say, by the Dorian Greeks, who they warred with for centuries. And the Dorian Greeks came from the children of Israel, and eventually by the Macedonians, who also came from the children of Israel, and from, by the Romans, ultimately, who also came from the children of Israel. But now we're getting way ahead of ourselves, right? <laughs> we, we don't want to go there yet. Maybe okay. not till we do part three. I, I don't know. But I'd like to discuss the children of, of Ham. The, the children of Ham are Cush is the first son of Ham. And Cush is um, the most contentious portion of this is describing who Cush was. If we go back to Genesis chapter 10, Nimrod was one of the first great Adamic emperors, the first great men to seek to create an empire. And Cush begot Nimrod, and he, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Eric and Akkad and Calneh in the land of Shinar. Well, Babel ultimately became what we know as Babylon. And Iraq is actually the ancient city that at one point the giant Gilgamesh had ruled over. 
And Gilgamesh is actually listed as one of the giants in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Gilgamesh of the famous city, of the, the epic of Gilgamesh. And Akkad was, later on in history, the capital of Assyria. And this was in the land of Shinar, which is what we know today is the, the, the lower portion of Mesopotamia. And it says, out of that land went forth Asher. Now, this is written in 1450, almost 1500 B.C., and this is before the rise of the later Assyrian Empire that that we see come to its its high point, its pinnacle, around the 8th century B.C. Out of that land went forth Asher and built Nineveh, which became the later capital of Assyria. But the Assyrian language is called Akkadian after that first city, Akkad. And the city Rehoboth and Kala and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, the same as a great city. So that's Nimrod's empire. And it included the lands of the Asher, the son of Shem. So one of the first things that these um, Genesis 10 nations did, that the Cushites conquered a portion of the Shemites and ruled over them. And, and that's in the person of Nimrod. And that's actually the beginnings of what historians call the first Babylonian Empire in the third millennium BC. The next, well, well let's speak about Cush. Yeah, you know, the Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible, there are two places called Cush. This Cush in Mesopotamia which was a great empire, and we see remnants of that in the account of Moses, who went to the land of Cush to get his wife. And it could be demonstrated that that land of Cush was in Arabia. That could be demonstrated from the Bible without a doubt. But there was another land of Cush to the south of Egypt, which we know as Ethiopia today. So the Hebrews identified two different places as Cush. Hang on, Bill. Hang on, Bill. What, what about um, Hindu Cush? Is that anything to do with it? In in, in India, they've got Hindu Cush well, yes, mountains? I believe so. I believe the name Hindu Cush is a remnant of that name Cush from that first Babylonian empire. That's what I believe. That's a pretty big empire. That name, oh, yeah, all the way to Jeez. the Indus River, right? Yeah. And and that's where the Hindu Kush mountains are. So I do believe that there is a historical connection there. So in in the Greek writers, in Homer, in, in the Iliad, Memnon was one of the allies of, of the Trojans. Memnon was called the king of the Ethiopians. But he wasn't from the Ethiopia before Africa. Below in, in Africa, below Egypt, he was from what Herodotus called the Ethiopia of the East. Memnon was the legendary founder of the city of Susa. And Susa appears in later history as the capital of Persia. 
So Memnon was from that land that we know today as Persia, and he was an Ethiopian, meaning that he was a Cushite from the Ethiopia of the East, or Cush, in Mesopotamia. The other Cush is below Egypt. And if you want to wonder why that was also called Ethiopia, you know, if you imagine them to have a land connection, it's a stretch. But if you look at the Persian Gulf and how close it is to the Horn of Africa, it's very easy to see that these Cushites sailed down the Euphrates River and the confluence of the Euphrates and Tigris Rivers into the Persian Gulf and crossed the Gulf and founded a colony on the Horn of Africa, which later became known as Ethiopia. It retained that name, where the places in the East lost the name, except for that relic that we see in the name of the Hindu Kush Mountains. So, this Ethiopia to the south of Egypt, was it, it was originally white. And at an early time, it was overrun and mingled with Nubians, and it became black. The people that lived there are, are basically bastards. They've been half white and half black for probably 2,500 years now. Actually, about 2,800 years. And there's a prophecy concerning that in Isaiah chapter 43. I was just going to mention Egypt. that. I was just going to say Ethiopia. that. Isn't there, something about, isn't there something about it in the Bible about um, Ethiopia changing color? Well, well, yeah. Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard change his spots? And the key to understanding that is that the Bible is full of Hebraisms and parallelisms. One particular aspect of the Hebrew writing is that the ancient Hebrew writers love to describe the same object or the same situation twice consecutively using different terms. And that's called a parallelism. Where it says... Can, a, can an Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? That's a parallelism. It's two different statements that mean essentially the same thing. So what is a leopard? A leopard is black and white. It has white in its coat and it has black spots. What is an Ethiopian? Well, Jeremiah wrote this. In 7th century BC, Jeremiah wrote, and Ethiopia had already become race mixed with Nubians. So an Ethiopian is white with black spots, or maybe black with white spots, or whatever. Its skin is white and black, just like the leopard. It's a parallelism. Where did, where did that well, we um... I can say, where, where did that word Ethiopian come from then? Because, you know, the, the, originally the word was Kush and, and they were Kushites and then they were called Ethiopians. Doesn't the word Ethiopian uh, refer in some way to, to the skin color? Well, 
not not yes yes it does and and not really the color not in its original meaning the word ethiopian comes from the greek word ahithops ahithops ops means face right and ahithon is a word which means fiery or burning Ahithrae is a word which means clear sky or fair weather. There's a, another form of ahithops which means fiery looking, of metal, flashing, of wine, sparkling. Now, the word Ethiopian never meant black until the middle of the first millennium A.D., it never meant black in any of the ancient Greek writings. It never meant dark complexed. It meant burnt or shining. Burnt as if something was on fire or shining. And that describes a white person with a sunburn is exactly what it describes. The word Ethiopian, ahithops, means shining face, or glowing face, or sunburned face, as its component words explain in the ancient Greek usage of those words. There's a lot of other words that describe black in Greek, melis, kalahinas, pelis, fahias, all describe black or dark, scotus. Kenephis, Kenophis, Denophis, Zophis, Zophorus. There's a dozen words that describe black or dark. But a heathops describes a burning face or a shining face. And I believe that the Greeks called these people Ethiopian because they were sunburned. And for no other reason. Negroes do not get sunburned as we consider sunburned. I think, um, isn't it Diodorus Siculus? He writes about there being two different types of people living there in Ethiopia. One is very civilized and just like the Greeks. And then there's another one that's, that's a complete savage wearing, uh, shirts made out of human hair that just grubs around on the ground for, for dirt and is completely uncivilizable. So he talks about there being two. Is that right? Diodorus Siculus? I think it is. Well, well, right. I could find that, 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 um, it's a great quote. <laughs> it is a really great quote. Well, well, it is an excellent passage because Diodorus Siculus was writing in the first century before Christ. He had no axe to grind against Ethiopians. This is from his Library of History, Book 3, Chapter 8. But there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians. The first people in, in Ethiopia that Diodorus described were people that were learned in the Greek language. They read the classics, they were schooled, they were educated, and ostensibly they were white. Now he says, but there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians some of them dwelling in land lying on both banks of the Nile and on the islands in the river, others inhabiting the neighboring country of Arabia, and still others residing in the interior of Libya. 
The majority of them, and especially those who dwell along the river, are black in color. Now, he never described the first group as being black in color, only this group, and have flat noses and woolly hair. As for their spirit, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast. So there we have it. He says not so much, however, in their temper as in their ways of living, for they are squalid all over their bodies, and they keep their nails very long like the wild beasts, and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another. This sounds just like a bunch of ghetto niggers, and speaking as they do with a shrill voice and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life, as these are found among the rest of mankind, they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. Now, Diodorus described them in comparison to the first group of Ethiopians he described, which shared Greek customs and even elements of Greek literature. So... There you have it, Diodorus Siculus, telling us that there are two distinct races in Ethiopia, one of them highly civilized and illiterate, and the other black with flat noses and woolly hair and absolutely savage. And they're the Cushites of the Bible. The white ones are the Cushites of the Bible. The black ones are just animals that somebody somewhere along the line mistook for people and decided to mix with. Just like we're doing today, all over again. So that's Cush. Cush is white, originally. There should be no doubt, historically, that Cush is white, originally. And later, the Ethiopians in Africa race mixed. Egypt is Mitzrayim all throughout the Bible, and I don't know how much historical evidence and, and archaeological evidence there is that proves the original Egyptians were white, but there's a great deal of it. I don't know if you want to add to that. It, it's um, constantly a point of white nationalists to point out that the original Egyptians were white. They had blonde hair. They had red hair. It just amazes me that, um, you know, most white nationalists will, as you say, they will point out that, that Egypt, the Egyptians were white. Um, they'll also say, well, that the Persians were white. They'll say that the ancient Indians were white. But then the country that's right in the middle of that, ancient Israel, they'll say, oh, no, they, they weren't white. They, they started out as, as Mongols. All that time ago, we were the, you know, they, they were the same as these, these white Egyptians and these white Persians and, you know, chapter 10 in, in Genesis, that tells you that the origins of all these peoples and they all originated with, with Noah and his three sons and they all started out white. If, if the Egyptians were white and the Persians were white, then the Israelites were white as well. The, the, the descendants of Shem were also white. They have to be, you know, they, they, they can't have it both ways. You know, if they're going to say that Egypt was originally white, then you have to say that the, the country next door was originally white as well, or the people that inhabited the country next door started out white. 
I, I absolutely agree. It, it's they were all white. In Palestine, you had the accursed Canaanites and the Edomites who race mixed with them, and the Rephaim and Kenites who the Canaanites race mixed with. Those people were accursed, and the ancient Israelites who were white were commanded to exterminate all of those accursed people. The Israelites failed. The Israelites were eventually infiltrated by the Edomites and branches of those Canaanites. And those infiltrators, and that's how the Apostle Jude and the Apostle Peter both describe them as infiltrators, they are the Jews of today. They're also the Arabs of today to a great extent, but they are the Jews of today. And while they infiltrated ancient Israel, and we have biblical testimony of that throughout the Bible, they also infiltrated all of the other nations of the ancient world, the Persians, the Assyrians, the, the Egyptians, and those nations are completely gone today. The people that live there being only race-mixed Arabs. You can see um, evidence of, of the Jews infiltrating Egyptian society in the way that the, these Jews were, or the Canaanites at the time, the way that they were actually depicted. And you got you got quite um, accurate depictions of the Jewish type that we see today uh, on the bottom of the sandals of, of Tutankhamun. And uh, also being attacked uh, along alongside the the Negroes. You know, the, the, at one time, the white Egyptians saw the, these Arab types and these and these Negro types as the enemy. And eventually, they must have been infiltrated by them and, and taken over by them. Absolutely, see. and and we can find in Egypt from before two thousand BC. In the admonitions of Ipuwer, Ipuwer was an Egyptian prophet, and he wrote before 2100 BC that a man regards his son as his enemy. A man of character goes into mourning because of what has happened in the land. Foreigners have become people everywhere. So here's a prophet from Egypt from 2100 BC who is complaining that foreigners have become people, meaning that people outside of Egypt, alien to the Egyptians, have become people, have gained the status of citizenship and citizens' rights in ancient Egypt. He's upset about this. Because to the original Egyptians, foreigners were not people. Just like today, we shouldn't consider foreigners people. And when we do, look at what happens. Our entire civilization is undermined. Doesn't he talk about paying taxes to keep these foreigners going as well? Or he's buckled under with the weight of all the money he has to pay out? Something like that. The resources are all going to them as well. Well, I wouldn't doubt it, but I don't remember the specific reference. I didn't cite it in this paper, but I wouldn't doubt it one bit because allowing a minority group into your nation and, and to receive the benefits of, of citizens, you're always opening your nation up 
two parasites. Yeah, there's a, that, there's a whole prayer, isn't there? There's a whole great long long prayer of his or whatever it is he's saying. It's um yeah, it's good. I I've, I've looked it up before. I, I remember making an, an article out of it, see, seeing you know where you recited it and and looking it up because it's a, a great piece of evidence that um, everything that's happening today is exactly what happened to these ancient civilizations. Well, well right, and it, and and it's warned about in in, in the ancient Hebrew prophets where the caterpillars and the canker worms and the palmer worms and the locusts in your land are devouring your goods it's not talking about bugs it's using the bugs as allegories for people today we have that in america what we have caterpillars palmer worms canker worms and locusts we have niggers spicks chinks and and arabs who are devouring our goods and and draining everything, draining all our resources, draining everything we have. So those bugs are just allegories for people. By 1700 BC, the Egyptians had gone full blast multicultural and changed their entire religion and and there's a um, a hymn to Amon Re dated from that period, which applauds Atum, who made the people, distinguished their nature, made their life, and separated colors one from another. As soon as you believe that your God made all the races equally, you're dead. Your society is on its way to extinction, just like ancient Egypt. And early Americans didn't believe that niggers were equal or, or that they should be citizens. But as soon as they became citizens, we've been sliding down the slippery path to total destruction. The idea that uh, all men were created equal, I remember reading a book, it's called uh, White Supremacy and Negro Subordination, and the author was writing it at the time, um, when that was declared that uh, all men are equal. And he says in that book that the only reason that was said is because they were having to share society with Negroes. And it's only once you have white people compared with Negroes, it's only then that all white people can be considered equal. Because if you have white people on their own, we're not equal. We have lots of differences between us. But if you compare us to Negroes, then all white men are created equal, which just shows you that at the time when that was, when that was written, they certainly never intended to include Negroes in it because it was quite obviously not true if you include Negroes. Blacks aren't it? Black the, isn't equal to white. The bottom line is that when Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, Negroes weren't considered because they weren't considered men. They, they were slaves. And the same Thomas Jefferson didn't have a problem with Negroes being counted as six-tenths of a man when the Constitution was written. That the Negroes weren't considered men. They were only considered six-tenths of a man because the South had the, the large concentrations of Negroes. And, and the whites in the South, who would never have let the Negroes vote at that time, nevertheless demanded um, increased representation 
for having to put up with the numbers of Negroes. So it, it's that was a compromise in the Constitution. But where Jefferson wrote all men were created equal, he was writing in opposition to the nobility in England who esteemed themselves to be above the law. He meant to say, he inferred in his statement that all men are created equal in the eyes of the law, because that was the political dispute of the time. That was the dispute which the American rebels had against the nobility in England, that they weren't above the law, even though they imagined themselves to be, and they held themselves above the law. So, so that statement has an entirely different context apart from any perception of racial equality that simply never existed. Yeah, the only way uh, all uh, white men are equal uh, in the fact that we are all better than Negroes. We're all nothing like Negroes. Do you know what I mean? We're, We're all white men as in one species, one race. That's, that's the only way that we are equal. And the only way that you could, you could tell that is if you were comparing us to another race. I think that, 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 that was the point that, um, this author was making, making at the time is, uh, it is, it's an impossibility to say that everybody is equal. But if you're looking at one, one racial type and comparing it to another, you can say, well, everybody that is part of that racial type, you know, they, they are equal if, and opposite to this other racial type. Maybe I'm not explaining it very well. It's a good book. The idea of egalitarianism is a Jewish idea that's designed to undermine Christian society. Egalitarianism never existed in history, and it never existed in reality. All men should never be equal. Even the democracy of Athens excluded aliens entirely, never allowed them to become citizens, never allowed them to vote, never allowed women to become equal citizens or vote. And and that was the model of democracy, which was put on a pedestal by many of the founding fathers of the American democracy, which has also been a, an abject failure. To continue with um, with, with with these Hamites, these sons of Ham, Mitzraim, wherever you see the word Egypt in, in the scripture, Mitzraim is the word that we get Egypt translated from, and that Mitzraim is a descendant of Ham, and all of the original Egyptians were absolutely white. The Philistines are said to have descended from a portion of the Egyptians and inhabited the coast of Canaan. Those Philistines were white, and they also had many connections to ancient Europe in in their seagoing ventures. They were a very seafaring people. The Ludim of Shem, the Lydians, the Lud of the descendants of Shem. Lud was a Lydian. Lydia was a great nation of ancient Anatolia up until the time it was destroyed by the Persians in the 6th century BC. 
and the Etruscans are said in all of the accounts of the ancient historians, the Etruscans are said to be descendants of the Lydians. And they were certainly white. The Etruscans of northern Italy were said by all ancient accounts to be a colony of the Lydians of Anatolia. The in in the um in the sons of Shem, you have Elam. Elam was the wherever you see Persia or Elam taking a role in history that we understand the Persians to have filled, the Hebrew word is Elam. And Elamaze to the Greeks was the principal district of Persia, which was on the Persian Gulf adjacent to the Tigris River, east of Mesopotamia. That was Elamaze. So we see that word Elam in Elamaze, which the Greeks understood to be the original district of the nation, which later was known as Persia. So the Persians were certainly white. And in fact, ancient historians who knew the Persians firsthand, up close and personal, Xenophon explained and marveled at the degree of whiteness of the Persian skin because they kept themselves clothed at all times. They didn't, the Greeks typically worked and fought in the nude outside, Greek men, and the Persians always kept themselves clothed. So the Greeks marveled at how white the Persians were. And here we have in the Persians a people directly related to the Hebrews. We have the um, Syrians, the word Aram in the descendants of Shem is Syria. Almost everywhere we see the word Syria in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is Aram. Now, the Arameans, the people of Aram, the Greeks actually traced their own descent and their own gods in part to these people of Aram. A lot of the people of Syria, a lot of the Syrians were said to have settled in, in ancient Greece. The um, gods, some of the gods of the Greeks were actually Syrians. Among them was Dionysius, was a Syrian. Um, Andromeda was saved by Persis from the sea monster on the coast of Joppa in Palestine. So there, there are all sorts of connections of, of the Greeks to ancient Palestine and Syria and Mesopotamia. And I could probably spend another program on that. I'm sorry, Sven. Well, no, I was just thinking when you were saying the Aram, um, and we know it is Syria, but obviously that, that would be where we get the um, term Aramaic from, for the alphabet. It goes back to Aram, does it? Um, yes, Aramaic comes from Aram. Absolutely. That, that's Aramaic was the, the language was the lingua franca, the language of trade and diplomacy during the time of the Babylonian Empire and was maintained for that, re, for that reason during the time of the Persian Empire. 
from the days of Alexander the Great, it was replaced with Coin Greek. Coin Greek became the lingua franca, the language of trade and diplomacy. So the lingua franca was what was in 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 the um, early first millennium BC. It was Akkadian, and when the Scythians started to cross into Europe, the Greeks wondered who they were and inquired with the people in the East, and they were told that they were Cymri, so the Greeks called them Kimeroi. Then, a little later on in history, when subsequent tribes of the Scythians crossed into Greek, in, into Europe, and the Greeks inquired as to who they were, they were Saka. They weren't Kimeroi any longer. They were Saka or Sake. And that's because in Aramaic, the children of Israel of the deportations were called Saka. But when Akkadian was the lingua franca, they were called Qumri. So we see the language change, and we see the descriptions of the Greek historians change at the same time that the language changed in the East, from Kimeroi to Saka. And, and Scythians. I, I was just thinking there about the, the, the lingua franca, and obviously today it, it's English. And I would say that right, right. right the way through, it's always been a white language. It's been the language of, of people that have been the most civilized and the most advanced. And, it, and it's been white all the, all the way back. So it's Aramaic, uh, Akkadian, uh, Latin, Greek, and, and now English. Right. Exactly. And, and, and they the were the last... People five or six languages of trade and diplomacy throughout the Mediterranean and, and, and Mesopotamian and European worlds in that order, the language of scholarship, it, it started out in, in historical times with Akkadian. It was probably Sumerian or something before that, but it started out in historical time or even Egyptian for a time. It started out in historical times with Akkadian, then it changed to Aramaic. It was Aramaic during the Persian and the Babylonian empires, and then it changed to Koine Greek, and then it changed to Latin in, in the medieval church period, and then it changed to English. White people all along. <laughs> you know, I mean, people might say, oh, Ar Aramaic thinking back to um you know the, the first century ad and they may be thinking oh aramaic is is a language that uh you know the the syrians use now and these arabs use but it, it you know it can't can't be the odd one out that, that was the non-white language i mean they had to have all been white because it, it was the language of the, of the most advanced people trading everywhere it's going to be the you know the most most advanced language that, that there was at the time i would have thought as well with the most with the most words and the most ways to describe things like Absolutely. So in Genesis chapter 10, we have, from the Shemites, we have Elam, and they're the Persians, and then we have Asher, and they are the Assyrians, and they were white, and then we have Lud in Genesis 10.22, and they were the Lydians of Western Anatolia, and they were white, and the Phrygians came from the Thracians and settled among the Lydians, so there's some cross between Japhethites and Shemites there. 
and the Etruscans came from the Lydians, and then we have Aram. Yet, you know, Aram, there, there were a people in the the centuries leading up to the time of Christ in Cappadocia, which is um, northern Syria along the Turkish border or far eastern Turkey in, in modern times along the Syrian border, right? We have Cappadocia. And there were a people there called white Syrians by the Greeks. For whatever reason, not even Strabo understood. Because Strabo, in his geography, actually said, and I'm paraphrasing, but I know it's very accurate, he actually said that he could not understand why these people were called white Syrians, as if there were any black ones. That's what he said. So Strabo, who was himself a Cappadocian, Strabo of Cappadocia, the great Greek geographer, he couldn't understand why his own people were called white Syrians, as if there were any black ones. So he's attesting that there are no black Syrians. He died in 25 AD. And of course, there were a large number of Judeans along the, among the Syrians, and Strabo knew them. If they were black, Strabo would have said so. <laughs> but he didn't. Well, I, I think also, I mean, when we go far back, that area, Syria, Tyre, Sidon, I mean, that, that was part of the Israel empire, wasn't it? It was part of the Israelite empire. They, when we talked about last week with uh, Joshua taking over those lands and then they were they were settled by the Israelites and then that was the, the golden age of Phoenicia was actually with those lands right. taken over by by Israelites so you know there would have been a lot of those descendants that were that were still there in his time I would have thought well well absolutely there absolutely were and and Phoenicia was actually where most of the Persian navy ships the ships that built the Persian navy that invaded Greece were built in, in the time of Xerxes. And the Greeks defeated them and sent all those ships to the bottom of the sea. But they were built by the Phoenicians, the Phoenicians of Tyre. So you seem to have had some... Phoenicians, Phoenicia didn't... The, the Phoenicians didn't really um, disappear as a... As a as a major force in the Mediterranean until Tyre was destroyed by Alexander the Great, the island of Tyre. The mainland part of the city was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the 590s BC. But Alexander the Great destroyed the island city around 330 BC. I was just thinking, so there was, there was a certain amount of uh, working together between Elam and, and the Hebrews then, wasn't there? And, I mean, it was also Cyrus that sent back the, the tribe of Judah back to Jerusalem and, and paid the money for the temple, and he was one of the, uh, I can't remember the name of the kings, the Achaemenid kings, I think, and he was obviously from, from the house of Elam. And then you've got this, you know, the working of the Persians and the Hebrews together, 
in Sidon and Tyre, and also when Solomon was getting his his temple built, he was he was working again with with the people from that area. So it seems as if the the people descended from Shem did did seem to have a loose alliance, or or at least acknowledge that they were you know related to one another. I would have thought. Especially with Cyrus, you know, paying for the temple to be rebuilt and, and sending the, the tribe of Judah back to Jerusalem once he'd uh, knocked out Assyria. Even in some of the Greek mythology, there is a kindred relationship between Danos, who was the legendary ancestor of the Danan Greeks, and Perseus, who was the legendary ancestor of the Persians. And they were connected in their myths, that there was a myth of blood connection between the Danans and the Persians, and also the Egyptians. So that, that this is no, yet you know, the ancient myths might be a little more fantastic than the Hebrew scriptures, but the connections by blood are claimed by both. Well, it's obviously the very important. By blood. I'm well, sorry. I say it must be very important to them. That's why they kept these genealogical records. I mean, if you read in the um, in the Old Testament, I mean, they had to prove that they were they were the sons of Levites for ten generations. And that was the same with, with the Druids in Britain. You had to prove you were a son of a free man going back 10 generations. And I dare say that, um, you know, the, the Persians and the people that were still white, you know, they, they would like to have, keep records of it and proof of it, who their ancestors were in the face well, well, of mongrelization. Absolutely. And, and the point here today has been to select the important tribes of Shem, Ham, and Japheth and show that, that the important, that the most outstanding in history of each of these families were all white. So there, you can't take chinks and niggers and squeeze them into this table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. They don't fit. They're not from the line of Noah. They're from some other origin outside of the Bible. It was Roman Catholic propaganda that insisted that all these people came from Noah in order to legitimize that their view of the Bible and their um, desire to rule over all these people. And a bit of Jewish fantasy as well, which we didn't actually get into from the Talmud, where they're claiming that um, Ham got turned black by the curse from Noah, when the curse was actually on Canaan. And there seems to be a bit of crossover. And then they say, oh, well, it was Canaan that actually got turned black. And, and Canaan is where the Negroes come from. They, they still don't have any answer for where the Chinese or, or the Japanese came from. But they, they tried to fit that in to say that, that that's why, why Ham turned black. And that was a Jewish idea. From the Talmud, there's no evidence for well, that in the Bible. Exactly, it's it, it's it's a Jewish fantasy, just like you said. Nobody turns black, even because of a curse. The Edomites, Esau was cursed. 
God hated Esau. That's pretty explicit in Scripture. But the Edomites were still white enough that Josephus or the apostles of Christ could not tell the Edomites from the Israelites, even though the Edomites were an accursed race. Well, Esau was a twin as well, wasn't he? You think about it, Esau was a twin, and what did it say about him? He had red hair. So that meant his brother had red hair as well. It meant that um, Jacob Israel must have been a redhead. I would have thought if, if Esau was. David was a redhead. Solomon had raven hair, but David was a redhead. So, and he was ruddy. The, the um, Greek myths of the Danans, that the earliest Greeks, inform us that the Egyptians were sacrificing men with red hair to their gods. So, <laughs> the Danans were probably talking about themselves. They better not go to Egypt. That's why they, that, that was one of the mythical reasons for why they fled Egypt. I think that's good for, for, for this program, and, and this is Bible Basics. We're just um, discussing the foundations of Scripture, why we should believe it, why we should accept it, why it's historical and hope that we can bring people to understand it. The New Testament proves a lot of this. And that the subsequent Old Testament history also proves a lot of this to be true. And, and I think we'll probably start there when we come back in part three. Excellent. Excellent. I've really enjoyed tonight, uh, Bill. And uh, yeah, I, I, I learned a lot from these programs as well, and I'm sure the, the listeners do. So thanks for uh, having me on once again. Thank you, Sven. Thanks for the help. And, and I think we're going to have a great series. We've still got two or three parts to go, maybe four. I don't know. Let's see how the next one goes. <laughs> see how far we get. We didn't get half as far this time as we hoped to. So... so. <sighs> this might take thing. six programs to get across, but That's I think it's it, it's well worth the effort. Yeah, we're, we're being thorough, and we're, and we're enjoying it. And, you know, that always helps. It's a, great, it's a great conversation, Sven. Thank you, and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, but not of the Jews. <laughs> <laughs>